Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So I have a story for you. Many years ago, I realized that I had to tell the truth about something I'd done. And telling the truth meant that I was going to really, really hurt somebody I loved very deeply. It also meant that I was going to have to fess up to something I deeply regretted and was ashamed of. I had cheated on my husband, my first husband. Mm. And, you know, I think that when we think about infidelity or, you know, any of those kinds of deceptions that we at sometimes carry on in relationships, um, we think about, you know, how you try to get away with it, how you try to conceal yep. uh, what you've done. The thing about not saying something is it feels safe to us, and it often is safe in the short term. Right. And, and you know, I'd reached this juncture in my life where I realized that I couldn't do that. And so I spent this day, I, I woke up one morning and I thought, this has to be the day. And I can't let another day pass before I say what needs to be said. And the man who I was married to at the time went to work. He worked, you know, from like nine to five. And I was home that whole day, uh, really just pacing and thinking. And of course, throughout the day, even though I was so sure I needed to say what needed to be said, I also... Uh, kept trying to convince myself that maybe I shouldn't say it yet. Maybe I should wait another day. Maybe, right. you know, like, so what happened is I uh, waited for him. He walked in the door. I told him, I have to tell you something, and it's going to be really hard to hear. And then I looked him in the eye, and I said it. I said, I've been unfaithful to you. And he fell onto his knees. Oh. I'll never forget it. And then he fell onto the floor. And he was actually holding a guitar. He was a musician. He was holding a guitar when this happened. And I remember to this day, you know, more than 20 years later, the sound, the twangy sounds that the guitar made beneath him as he sort of collapsed on top of it. Oh, gosh. And he cried. And... Obviously, it was an incredibly painful moment in my life. I cried too. But what was so striking to me is that that, that my words really were, they were like a kind of weapon. Mm -hmm. Like they actually caused him to fall onto the floor in pain. Yeah. And also they changed our lives. It wasn't that what was true wasn't true before I said it. But when I said it, it became a truth by which we had to then live our lives and make mm-hmm. decisions. And, and, and it, it was that 
sentence that led to the demise of my first marriage. Now, of course, you could say, no, it was your actions or your feelings or all of these things. But really, that, that, that moment where we had that difficult conversation, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the power of speaking the truth, the power of saying what's hard to say, and the consequences of using that power, and also the consequences of when you don't say it. Yeah. Let me read our first letter. Dear Sugars, my mother-in-law lives with us, me, my husband, and our two children. She moved in to help out when the kids were first born. It was tough, but we adjusted. We held family meetings, spoke about who would take care of the kids when, and made it work. I'm so grateful she was there to help us during the first year of each of my kids' lives. My daughter is now five, and my son is three. They have both been in daycare for two to four years. During this time, my mother-in-law has moved in and out of our house twice before moving back in because she couldn't afford to live alone. Currently, she's been living with us for over a year while she gets her finances back in order. She recently claimed bankruptcy because of her spending habits and budgeting. She says she doesn't want to live with us forever, but is not changing anything in terms of finances, and that worries me. And yet, I'm hesitant to approach the subject of her moving out. We wouldn't force her to leave tomorrow, not even in the next few months, but we'd like to put together an exit strategy, if you will. What I don't want to happen is her to move out and then back in again in six months like she has in the past. She's been in our house most of the time since the kids have been born, and she's like a third parent. Every time she leaves and comes back, it's unhealthy for the kids. Since she helped us with the kids for so long, am I obligated to let her live with us indefinitely or at least another five years? At what point do we give her a deadline? Do we discuss her finances and spending? My husband is supportive of our decision, and he knows we need to have another family meeting about this, but I fear I might come off as ungrateful for the things she has done by pressing this issue. Signed, Ungrateful Daughter-in-Law. Hmm. Mm. You know, this is obviously fraught because, you know, there's they're saying something hard and then they're saying something hard to your mother-in-law. That's always you know, an incredibly complicated situation. There are a couple of things that I was really struck by in your letter, and, and I think that you should draw on those uh, things in particular. The first is your, your genuine gratitude for right. your mother-in-law. She helped you tremendously at a time in your life when you deeply needed it. And um, I do think that that doesn't mean that you need to have her living with you forever, but it does mean that you're obligated to her in some ways. And I think you should, you know, think about um, how you might, in your gratitude, help her in this moment. And and that might even be, you know, instead of saying, okay, we we want you out, say, you know, we want to help you find a place and we're able to, uh, you know, pay for the down payment on this apartment or we're we're able to give you a couple thousand dollars to help you get get going. And you know so that it's a positive solution oriented conversation rather than one that is um saying get out. The other thing is you both want the same thing. And I think that when you begin a conversation um from that position rather than saying we're opposing each other, this isn't a woman who's saying I want to live with you for the rest of my life and you're saying no. It's a woman who's saying I don't want to live with you. I understand why I should move out. And so, you know, be her ally and approach the conversation from that position. 
it's going to be a more peaceful conversation. It's also probably going to be a more productive one because you're saying, okay, you can enlist me, mother-in-law, in helping you with this search for an apartment and helping you make that next move into that next era of your life. Yeah, that's clearly what you feel needs to happen. And this rubber banding in and out of the house is unsettling both for your kids, but also for you. It's also unhealthy for the kids to have you in a low-level state of resentment about the situation. Um, And I think reading between the lines a little bit, you're initiating this and your husband is supportive of the decision, but it doesn't sound like he made the decision. This was a symbiosis where both parties were being helped for a while, but now it's more like an enabling situation where she's not going to take care of her finances until she has to. She's gone from being the caretaker for the young kids to essentially being the taken care of by you and your husband. And I think you can be frank with her about saying, I don't think it's good for the kids or you or us to be unstable. But I think it's important for your husband to not just be endorsing the decision, but actually be an equal partner in it. And maybe even because it is his mother, a leading partner, if you know what I mean. And I think the more friendly and productive and constructive and honest you are up front about this is it, this is not an invitation to come back in six months, the easier it's going to be to keep that boundary if there are problems down the line. All right, let's move on to our next letter. Dear Sugars, my 17-year-old daughter lives far away. This past month, she and I met in a different country for a vacation. We hiked and did all the things that tourists do. She brought her camera with her, and we used hers instead of mine to take pictures of our trip. One day, while she was sleeping, I decided to download our photographs. When I plugged her camera into my laptop, I was asked if I wanted to download all the new pictures. I clicked yes. And boy, oh boy, did it start to download all the pictures, not just our vacation pictures. There were pictures of my daughter and her boyfriend in positions that would make you blush. Some of the pictures were only of her in porn star-like poses. I was stunned, then disgusted, then extremely sad. I cried. I waited for a while to mention it to her. After she was back at school and I was at home, I told her over the phone that I saw the pictures. I told her that it was foolish of her to take them and carry them around, and I said I was afraid others had seen them too. I told her to delete them, and she said she would. She's coming for a short visit soon, and I would like to know what you think I should do. I feel like she has somehow disgraced herself, and I am sad about it. I have three main concerns. One, she is young to have sex. I understand that ship has sailed. She has had the same boyfriend, her first, for a year now. She has been on birth control since she turned 16. Two, she shouldn't have taken these pictures. What if her boyfriend turns against her and uses these pictures against her? Three, she shouldn't have kept the photos. What if somebody else gets their hands on them? Should I bring it up to her and tell her she's grounded? Signed, distressed. Mm. This one. This is a modern. This is a modern problem. And it's, you know, and it's a serious one. This isn't distressed just a, a personal issue between you and your daughter. It's one that has, uh, you know, could have really uh, larger consequences, including legal consequences. Mm-hmm. Because um, quite frankly, that's child pornography, naked pictures of a 17-year-old. This isn't uh, just, you know, scolding your daughter and and asking her to delete the pictures. I do think you should absolutely talk to her about it. You know, really, um, 
in a loving way, talk to your daughter about why this is important um, that she not do this again. Because there are so many sad stories of people who, you know, were in a relationship and they took those sexy photos. And then, you know, years later, they pop up in places that really lead to some pretty devastating and negative consequences. So I would take this quite seriously. This is a conversation you need to have as soon as possible. You know, I think it's extremely important before you have this conversation that you recognize that there are two things really in this letter that you're writing us about distressed. One is uh, her sexual choices that trouble you, and the other is her choices that could hurt her. She's having what we assume to be consensual, you know, and protected, responsible sex with her boyfriend. That disturbs you, and you could certainly share those feelings with her that you feel she's too young and so forth. But those are uh, sexual choices that trouble you. There's a whole other set of choices she's making that Cheryl, I think, articulated quite pointedly that could really hurt her and you, actually, by extension, but more importantly, her. And I think it's important to make that distinction for her and maybe even to, in the course of this conversation, say, I know there are certain decisions you're going to make in your sexual life with your body that I can't control. You're 17 now. We don't live in the same city. You get to make those decisions. They may trouble me, but they are your right to make. But as your parent and guardian, there are other decisions that really could hurt you. And I know it doesn't seem like they will, but they really could. The important thing now is to say, well, there are other consequences in this time. It might even be worth finding yourself a good documentary or article or some resource that talks about revenge porn mm -hmm. and what happens and how every person who consents to having photos taken or even enthusiastically wants those photos taken is at some level at risk of having that boomerang on them in a way that is deeply emotionally distressing. All parents who have, you know, raised kids through adolescence, especially in this generation where there are things like a permanent cloud, which has a record of any photo that you might take with your boyfriend or partner, they tell me, keep the lines of communication open. Do as much listening as you can, as much asking questions as you can. So in addition to talking with her about this and setting out quite clearly your concerns about decisions that could really harm her, I would also... Use this as an occasion to talk about, well, you know, what is this relationship with this fellow about? Uh, you know, what does it mean to you? Uh, the fact that she has birth control and she's on birth control to me is a good sign, frankly, distress. That means she's taking it seriously and taking that particular kind of consequence seriously. Yeah. I actually do think your daughter is having what sounds to be like a, a really pretty uh, responsible and loving first sexual relationship with her boyfriend. She's, you know, in a relationship with him. She's on birth control. It might be disturbing to think about your 17-year-old daughter having sex. I think most parents feel uh, that feels a little stomach-turning, but it's also true that many, many 17-year-olds are sexually active. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I think, too, that these kids... These 17-year-olds who took these pictures, you know, they're really just doing what uh, we're doing these days, right? Everything we do, we whip out that phone yep. that has a camera on it. Let's take pictures. And so, I mean, I think it's really important your concern not be expressed as condemnation. Right. So I think as, as her mother distressed, it's really your job to be her protector and also her guide. We'll be right back after the break. <laughs> 
Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Dear Sugars, I've been raising my two daughters as a single mom since they were almost six and three. They're now almost 20 and 17. My ex, I'll call him David, is a drug addict that has been in and out of jail in their lives for all that time. My oldest daughter has struggled with his absence most of her life. She had a stronger memory of her father than her sister from those brief early years, and it took her a long time to accept him for who he is. She would often blame any issues on him or me for divorcing him. I always struggled with figuring out how much of her issues had to do with his abandonment of her and how much was just normal childhood struggle. I don't think she stopped hoping for him to be there for her until he texted her during her high school graduation to say that he wasn't going to make it. Very recently, we have learned that she struggles with clinical anxiety. She continues to live at home while she works her low-paying but dream job. While we still have issues, they are mostly related to her anxiety and figuring out how to manage that. She leans on me quite heavily for emotional support. I'm trying to help her, but at the same time trying to let her make her own adult decisions as much as possible. None of that, however, is the reason I'm writing. I'm writing because I've kept a secret from her for her whole life. I don't know if David is her biological father. Around the time I got pregnant, I'd left David for a brief period of time and slept with another man. This man was no more father material than David. Soon after I discovered I was pregnant, David and I reconciled. He knew there was a chance he was not the father, but accepted it anyway. I don't know when, if ever, to tell her this. When she was younger, it made no sense to explain it. As she got older, she still had so many emotional issues, which I now understand her anxiety, that it never and still doesn't seem the right time to tell her. I get uncomfortable, however, whenever she asks about anything related to heredity. If she gets her eye and hair color from her dad's side of the family, if she has a greater risk of cancer, that sort of thing. My daughters are soon going to a family event on David's side of the family, without me. Some of his family also know that there's a chance that David's not her father. He is definitely my other daughter's father. I wonder if she asks them the kinds of questions she sometimes asks me if one of them will feel like they should tell her. I know she'll be mad at me for keeping this secret as long as I have. I know it will be worse if someone else tells her. But I still am really afraid to do it. 
not just because she'll be mad, but because she is so emotionally unstable. She's been known to do self-destructive things, and I'm concerned that this might break her. I'm terrified she might attempt suicide or get herself into some other kind of trouble and that she won't turn to me as she does now because she'll have shut me out. There are times when she feels very alone in the world and that I'm the only one she can trust. I worry she will take this news as a betrayal that she can't get over. I would feel better about telling her if she were in therapy, and I've been trying to encourage her to go for her anxiety, but she hasn't yet, and I can't make her go. I can't decide if telling her is just a way of shifting that burden from me to her, or if it really is in her best interest to know. Is it possible that continuing to keep this to myself is truly the right thing to do? What do you think, Sugars? What is in her best interest, and if not now, then when? And if I should tell her, how do I start that conversation? Signed, Secretly Struggling. Well, secretly struggling. I think you should tell her. People need to know those sorts of things. I mean, we've seen this over and over in conversations with people who've had, you know, been adopted at birth and that those records were sealed have said, no, I have a right to know my heredity. And so secretly struggling, I do think your daughter also has a right to know that. But I, but I think that you should also hold in your mind a couple of other thoughts. One is that you do not know that David is not her biological father. You're not uh, delivering news that is um, definitive. You're rather delivering news that is, if you want to know the answer to this question, if you want to confirm whether David is your biological father or not, um, let us explore that. There's a sibling DNA test. Uh, that she can take secretly struggling along with her sister and also you, the three of you together, those results can be analyzed and definitively tell you whether your daughters are half-siblings or full-siblings biologically. And so I think that, you know, really um, remembering, you know, you're not giving her an answer. You're simply allowing her in on a journey that has contained doubt and mystery and, and, and unknowing for you, secretly struggling. I think that's important to remember. The other thing is that David is her father, okay? He might not be her father biologically, but, but he is her father in, in her life. And yes, he abandoned her and was in and out of her life, but he was in her life in a way that has deeply and unfortunately in, impacted her negatively. But nothing will obliterate the experience she had with the father she knew. And I think one part of reckoning uh, with this, if she does indeed find out that this other man uh, is is indeed her biological father, is to remember that David will always be the father he was to her, whether he, they were biologically connected or not. This other man is a, is a perfect stranger. And I think that all of this is complicated enough that, you know, you should be in therapy together, not just encouraging your daughter to go to therapy for her anxiety, which I agree is a great idea. But I think that these are, uh, you know, such deep questions. And your daughter secretly struggling is in such a fragile state psychologically. Also, you know, she's at an age where even even when things are going well, we're often, uh, you know, very emotional and volatile and, and trying to figure out who we are. Maybe it's you go to therapy with both of your daughters because, of course, this this impacts your other daughter as well. If you find that uh, your two daughters have different fathers, this this reshapes, at least in their minds, um, some of the things they've taken for granted about your family mm-hmm. for their whole lives. Yeah. I, I think 
what you're failing to take into account is you've had to do something really hard, which is to raise two kids on your own with a father or fathers who are either not in the picture at all or are in the picture for brief ways that are ultimately disruptive and damaging to the kids who you're trying to raise up and and keep safe and keep happy. I understand exactly why you've made the decisions you've made. Um, I do think you're asking all the right questions, and I do think that you know that your daughter is starting to wonder about her heredity. And when she asks about things like the risk of cancer or even her anxiety, there is something to be said for the fact that in a way just saying it or getting that test and finding out the truth could explain certain things um, in terms of her mood, uh, if you know, mood disorder, her anxiety, but even to be responsible about who she is. Mm-hmm. I think this, this letter uh, from Secretly Struggling really for me uh, – clarifies in so many ways really the answers to all of these questions that have been presented to us by these letter writers on the show today and also the many in our inbox uh, where people have said, okay, there is something that I feel like I should say, but I'm going to push it aside and not say it. And and what, what we see secretly struggling, you know, uh, it is true that would have been an awkward conversation to have with your daughters when they were kids, but it's also would have been an easier one. Yeah. If you had found out definitively, you know, in childhood uh, that, you know, whether David was your older daughter's father or not, this wouldn't have been so complicated because you could have started to really, first of all, just resolve the question, but also integrate that narrative into both of your daughter's lives, your family's life, right. okay? And I get the reason you didn't do it. Uh, it's because it's hard to say that stuff. When I told that story about saying the hard thing to my ex-husband, mm-hmm. of course, the reason it was so hard to say is because I hadn't said it for so long before I cheated on him. Right. I knew the thing that I needed to say, and that was, I don't think... I want to be married to you anymore. I didn't say that. Right. So then I did something that would force me to say that in a different way, in a more painful way, in a in a way that was absolutely at odds with my ethical code and my values and the person I believe myself to be. Right. And so to everyone listening that you know if you're that that thing you need to say what I want to say to you is say it sooner rather than later. Yeah. And we all put it off because it's hard but it's not going to get easier if you wait. No. It almost always is better if you say it. And the other thing about this that I've learned is that yes, I said the hard thing and a man fell onto the floor weeping and I fell on top of him weeping too. And it was an extremely painful moment in my life. And it was a moment that led to only good things in the long run. That, you know, it was a moment that freed us of a relationship in which we both were not getting what we deserved to get in our lives. You know, it, we went on to be able to get that because we were brave enough to speak the truth to each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that it's really important to, 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 to ponder that, you know, to all of our letter writers. Will it be hard when you say to your mother-in-law, I think it's time for you to move out? Or um, when you say uh, to the daughter, I don't know if this man uh, 
that you've thought of as your father is really your father. Will it be hard that day, that week, maybe even that year? Absolutely. But it will lead to better things in the long run. Mm-hmm. It won't be better in 10 years if you, if you carry that burden inside of you, you know, and live that life of, of uncertainty and regret and, and really an anger that often turns into rage. Yeah. Or to put it in the words of James Baldwin, not everything can be solved. But nothing that isn't confronted can ever be solved. That's your guarantee. But I, I could not agree more deeply that, that the truth has a weight, and it, it, that weight doesn't relent until it's out. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. Our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Argo Studios in New York City with Paul Ruest. Our mix engineer is Josh Rogeson. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss. And other music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. <laughs>